our Father in heaven, Lord, we know that Jesus is coming. And we want to be able to sing and praise you with all of our being. We already know the angelic host are doing so. And we want to join in that choir. Lord, we pray that you will help us. We ask that you will wean us from the things of this world, from its principles, from its rudiments, from its philosophies, so that we can have an enlightened worship service, one that will praise you with our intellect and with our emotions, with our feelings. So, Father, we ask that you help us and that you'll guide us. And we thank you for sending your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just for audioverse.org. Yes, go ahead. If people can find a chair, they can stay. Otherwise, they're going to have to stand in the hallway. Okay. The announcement is if, uh, if there are any chairs available, you need to go to that chair. Otherwise, you need to stand in the hallway. Uh, and so uh, uh, for those of you that are standing you know, up there, you need to find a chair or you need, or you need to stand in the hallway for, for safety procedures. All right? So, um, okay, just for Audioverse, uh, my name is Pastor Carl Satalbasidis. This uh, seminar is the Rock and Worship Music at the End of Time. And this session is session number six, Watch and Pray or Dance and Play. So in this session, we'll be looking at dancing. What about dancing? Miriam danced. David danced. And in certain versions of the Bible, in Psalm 149, verse 3, and 150, verse 4, it tells us to praise Him with dance. So why not then introduce dance into the worship service today? Solomon said, there is a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. Now, if there is a time to dance, it means that there is also not a time to dance, right? So how would you know whether it is the time to dance right now? That's what we're going to get into in this, in this seminar. And even if it is a time to dance, here's the second problem. What form will the dance be of? All right? So you got two issues. So don't be so quick to when the Bible says, oh yeah, let's praise Him with dance. Okay, let's do it. And we haven't thought about when or how. Two very important issues. And we've been talking a lot about how in the, in the previous sessions. Well, I want to link dancing also with theology and philosophy. So if any of you were here for the first two sessions, you will be able to understand what I'm saying right here and right now. In Exodus chapter 32 at the golden calf, the Bible said in verse 1, Up, make us gods which will go before us. Well, that's a fundamental change in the concept of God. Our understanding of God is not limited to what we find in the creation. And we also found out that very early in the Christian church, they borrowed Greek philosophy. And they made constructions and meanings about God that were interpreted falsely from what they saw in the creation. Later on, the Roman Catholic Church and now Protestant evangelicals have adopted that philosophical structure for their concept and their theological understanding of God. So up make us gods which will go before us. In verse 4 it says, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. 
And then it says the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And then in verse 19, Moses said, or the Bible said that Moses came down and he saw the calf and the dancing. The point here is we cannot separate the dance from the theological philosophical structure, just like the music part of it. Certain forms go on certain foundations. No one builds a skyscraper on a six-inch foundation. You cannot say that there's no relationship between the foundation and the structure. Every builder knows that that's false. Interestingly enough, the building motif is very rich in the Bible. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul described himself as a master builder. Was he talking about brick and mortar? No, he was talking about concepts, ideas. That's what he was talking about. And so these things are all interrelated. So, in Exodus chapter 32, you have a form of dancing that is, of course, uh, out of control, sensual, entertaining. We've all covered that in a previous session. There was also dancing at Baal Peor in the Spirit of Prophecy. So music and dance communicate more than just rhythm, melody, and harmony. If you get that from this seminar, my job is almost done. If you say that it's neutral, you, you've bought into another philosophical foundation that has no connection with the sanctuary, with the three angels' messages, and with the pillars of our faith. No connection whatsoever. If you believe you can worship God any way you please, you are not building on that foundation. There's no way. And we've covered that many times here. So, music and dance communicate more than just rhythm, melody, and harmony. They also communicate theology and philosophy. When is it a time to dance? You will find that as you study your Bible, and as I'm looking for mine right now, uh, there it is, okay. As you study your Bible, that's why we all got to be like Brother Skeet, right? Got to be up here. Exodus chapter 15, verse 20. It says that Miriam danced, right? When is it a time to dance? And we're going to see this pattern exemplified. When did Miriam dance? Before the Red Sea or after? Yes. It was after God parted the Red Sea that she danced. That she took up the timbrel and, and, and danced. Judges chapter 11, verse 34. This is the story of Jephthah and his daughter. And when Jephthah won that military victory in Judges chapter 11, verse 34, it was then when his daughter danced. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 6. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 6. Now, this is after the battle where David had slew the giant Goliath. All right? And notice what it says in verse 6. And it came to pass as they came when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrets, with joy, and with instruments of music. The only question I'm addressing now is when. Did the ladies all dance before David got there? Hey, let's have you. No, they danced afterwards. That makes sense, doesn't it? Chapter 21, verse 11. 1 Samuel 21. 
This is where Saul gets a little hot under the collar. It says, And the servants of Achish uh, said unto him, Oh no, this is not Saul. Uh, is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? 29, verse 5. Same story. Again, the Philistines again. Is not this David whom they sang one to another in dances, saying, Saul slew thousands and David his ten thousands? They did that after he slew the giant. 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse 16. We're going to come back to this one. The Amalekites. David and his men were at Ziklag. The Amalekites came and they, they leveled Ziklag. And so what did they do? They thought the battle was over. And we're going to come back to this a little later. It says, When they had brought him down, behold, they were spread abroad upon all the earth, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil that they had taken out of the land of the Philistines and out of the land of Judah. So that's what the Amalekites did. They said, Oh, man, we beat those Israelites. You beat an enemy that wasn't even there. And so they, they were looking for any excuse to dance. So they did that. And same with Jeremiah 4, 31, verse 4, and 13. So when is it a time to dance? Before the battle or after the battle? Okay. It's after a major victory. Now, people want to pick on Miriam and say, you know what? Miriam was a woman of God. That was Moses' sister. And she took up the timbrel and she danced. And God never said anything about that. No, He didn't. Genesis chapter 15, verse 12 to 14, God warned Abraham that his descendants would be slaves in Egypt, but they would, they would also come out of Egypt with great substance. It was after that that Miriam danced. Look at this statement in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 289. That song, the song of Moses, that song does not belong to the Jewish people alone. It points in which direction? Forward to the destruction, not just of the national enemies of Israel. It points forward to the destruction of all the foes of righteousness and the final victory of the Israel of God. So, we got to make a connection here between the song of Moses, in which Miriam danced, and the song of the Lamb that God's people are going to sing in Revelation 15. And that's, that's quoted here. The prophet of Patmos beholds the white-robed multitude that have gotten the victory, standing on the sea of glass, mingled with fire, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, people want to say, well, Miriam did it, so therefore we can introduce it right now into the worship service. When? Didn't Solomon say there was a time to mourn and a time to dance? Well, when would be the time to dance now? Are we through with the issues of the beast and its mark and its image? No, we're not through. Are we standing on the sea of glass right now? No, we're not. So would it be a right time to introduce dance right now according to the typology? No, it would not. To do that would be to violate the hermeneutical, biblical principles of interpretation. And you do that only to justify what you want to do. So you, you have no biblical right to inject that and say, well, they did it. Well, yeah, but they also killed and committed adultery and all that kind of stuff too. So just because something is mentioned in the Bible, that gives you the license to do it? Without exercising any kind of care in how the Bible is interpreted?
that's not a responsible way for doing Bible study. So this points forward, and we are not through yet with the beast and its mark and its image. Well, what about David? He danced. I'm going to go through a little bit of a study now to try to link David's dancing and Jesus' ascension and the implications for us. All right? I did an interesting study. Look at Psalm chapter 24, verse 7 to 10. Psalm chapter 24. And verses 7 to 10. By the way, Psalms chapter 22, 23, and 24 are kind of like a trilogy. You know, in Psalm 22, Jesus is on the cross. If you read verse 15 or 16, dogs have encompassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. In Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And in Psalm 24, verse 7 to 10, it's a resurrection psalm. In verse, in verse 7 it says, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Think of this as an antiphonal response. Just, just imagine the folk on my left side just began to sing that. And then the folk on, my, on the right side would say, Who is this King of glory? And the folk on the left side would say, The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Then perhaps the folk on the right side would say, Lift up your gates, lift up your heads, O you gates, and lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. And these folk over here would say, Who is this King of glory? And the others would say, The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Does that sound lifeless to you if you just use your imagination? I mean, can you picture the scene? Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. I mean, Jesus just won the most marvelous victory on the cross. It's described in Colossians chapter 2 in military terms. He disarmed all the principalities and powers in that chapter. Made a show of them openly triumphing over them in it. And I mean, don't you think that there was some rejoicing up there? Amen. Amen. This passage is quoted two times in the spirit of prophecy that I know of. Psalm chapter 24, verse 7 to 10. <clears throat> it was first quoted when David brought the ark back to Jerusalem. You find that in the reference up there, 707 to 708. It was later quoted after Christ's ascension in Desire of Ages 833, and it was alluded to in the book Acts of the Apostles on page 38 in connection with the inauguration of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So, it's mentioned in two contexts. David going to Jerusalem to bring up the ark, and Jesus going up to heaven. In, Psalm, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 22 to 25, David won a great victory over the Philistines. I mean, and, and the Philistines came in mass this time. And they wanted to squash the Israelites. And David won a great victory over the Philistines. Who's the new David, by the way? <laughs> I think it's Ezekiel who mentions the new David. It's Jesus. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 15, David and all of Israel accompanied the ark to Jerusalem in a triumphant procession during which David leaped and danced. And by the way, there's no record that I know of where men and women were dancing together. And most of the kind of music we listen to would lend itself to that. 
because it's so inundated with, uh, with sexuality that that's the way it's done. But you can't interject that into what they were doing back then. So he leaped, it says, and danced. It says, when they approached the city, as David is approaching the city, the, the literal Jerusalem, Patriarchs and Prophets 707, it says, A burst of song demanded of the watchers upon the walls that the gates of the holy city should be thrown open. At this time, Psalm 24, verse 7, uh, 24 verses 7 to 10 is sung by a band of singers in an antiphonal response. 708, Patriarchs and Prophets, and 2 Samuel 6.19 says this, The service ended, the king himself pronounced a benediction upon his people, then with regal bounty he caused gifts of food and wine to be distributed for their refreshment. So David brings the ark back to Jerusalem, the joyous occasion, then he sends out gifts to everyone else. And that's mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 19 as well. Now, I want to switch gears to Jesus. Just like David, Jesus won a great victory. It's described in military terms in Colossians chapter 2. As he ascended, the multitude of captives set free at his resurrection followed. Desire of Ages 8.33 says, The heavenly host with shouts and acclamations of praise and celestial song attend the joyous train. So just like David and his entourage were to the literal Jerusalem, Jesus is now ascending into heaven, and he's got an entourage going with him. As they draw near the holy city, the escorting angels, along with the sentinels in the city, sing the words in Psalm 24, verse 7 to 10, in an antiphonal response. Page 833 and 835 of the Desire of Ages says this, Then the portals of the city of God are opened wide, and the angelic throngs sweep through the gates amidst a burst of rapturous music. Songs of triumph mingle with the music from the angel harps, till heaven seems to overflow with joy and praise. That doesn't sound too dull and boring to me. Uh, what's the accompanying instrument again? The harp, right? And again, until the 20th century, I've never heard a harp accompanied by the backbeat. But you know, today, anything's possible. When Christ passed within the heavenly gates, He was enthroned amidst the adoration of the angels. As soon as this ceremony was completed, the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples in rich currents, and Christ was indeed glorified. When David's ceremony was done, He distributed gifts of food and wine. When Christ was ultimately inaugurated in the heavenly sanctuary, the Holy Spirit went out. The Pentecostal outpouring was heaven's communication that the Redeemer's inauguration was accomplished. So just as David gave gifts after the ark came to Jerusalem, so Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, the greatest gift, to bless His waiting people. Now what are the implications of this? The evidence strongly suggests that David's joyous dancing while accompanying the ark to Jerusalem is a type or a prophecy that finds its fulfillment in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus into the heavenly Jerusalem. There are two important questions to consider. When did the dancing and celebration occur? And who was doing the celebrating? It was after the military battle with the Philistines that David and all Israel danced. It was after Jesus' victory over sin and Satan that the celebration began in heaven. How do I know that? Turn with me to Revelation 12, verse 10 to 12. Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 to 12. 
This is one of my favorite chapters. Because in 17 short verses, God condenses the whole great controversy which began in heaven and which will culminate on the earth in just these 17 verses. And right here in the center is the greatest military victory that has ever been achieved. And Jesus accomplished it. Verse 10, it says, And I heard what kind of voice? You young folk, do you like that? I heard a loud voice. Now, this is not loud, chaotic, disharmonic, like in, like in Exodus chapter 32. No, there's two kinds of loud, all right? And this is not that kind of loud. So it says, I heard a loud voice saying where? In heaven. Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God, and the power of His Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. He was cast down at the cross. No longer any sympathy between the angelic host and the devil. He could try, but he wasn't going to get any more sympathy from them. They just saw him put Jesus to death on the cross. He was cast down. And in verse 11 it says, they overcame him, that's the enemy, they overcame the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Now notice what it says in verse 12. It says, therefore rejoice, who? Heavens. It says, rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. What about us? Keep reading. It says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil has come down unto you having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Now, does that mean we all need to walk around saying, you know, woe is me, man, the devil's after me, you know. I don't know what to do, you know. No, he's a defeated foe. It simply means we need to be on our guard. We're not quite where they're at right now. It says, rejoice, ye heavens. Now, Revelation 12 reminds me of the, of the amazing things that some of God's people went through during the Dark Ages. The dragon persecuted God's people. God's people had to flee into the wilderness. And there are some of those people that willingly laid down their lives. I had the privilege of, of, of being in Torapolici in Italy, in the foothills of the Alps just this summer, and climbing Mount Castelluzzo, where some of the, God's people were led up to that mountain, where the, where, where the people were, where the soldiers were following them. And finally, it was either, it was either gunpoint or, uh, or the sword, or you fall 3,000 feet or so to your death. And that's exactly what happened. There are other stories in the book Great Controversy where some of the ladies would dress in their, in their uh, wedding uh, garments as they were about to be executed. That's a joy that God wants us to have. That's, that, that comes from principle. That's so unlike the worship philosophies that some of us are, are, are endorsing today. Whereas if you don't tickle my fancy and if you don't do it my way, I'm out of here. These people willingly laid down their lives. What an amazing period. And they did so singing. They did so with joy. They died as conquerors. So just because it says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, doesn't mean that we don't have true joy. Paul in the Mamertine prison 
writing even to the Philippians. He says, rejoice. I mean, the man is in bonds. All he could think about is rejoice. Rejoice. What this does mean is that we need to be on our guard. Because you can't watch and pray and dance and play at the same time. You can't do that. You can only do one or the other. So, it's the ones who were in Jerusalem and on the way to Jerusalem that were really doing the celebrating, that could let down their guard and really worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, unrestrained. They didn't have to, you know. Using David's dancing as a justification for dance in the worship service misses this typological implication regarding when and who is doing the celebrating. Dancing in the temple service? Well, the word karar for dance is used only in two instances referring to David's dancing, but it's never used in connection with temple worship. It was David himself who, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, declared that these are the instruments that are to be used. I just shared with you in the previous seminar that it's, it's, it's through the rhythms that we experience a lot of our motion, you know, when it comes to movement. When you exclude that, you know, you're really, you're really excluding dance. So he already excluded those. Now let's look at the form of David's dancing. This is an inspired commentary now. The one question, when is it a time to dance? The second question, well, if you're going to do it, how are you going to do it? In a sense, there's really no point in even going here because it's not a time to dance. But let's answer it anyway. David's dancing in reverent joy before has been cited by pleasure lovers in justification of the fashionable modern dance. But there is no ground for such an argument. In our day, that was like about 100 years ago, all right? In our day, dancing is associated with folly and midnight revelry. In our day. The music and dancing in joyful praise to God at the removal of the ark, now I want you to focus on very one important word, had not the faintest... <coughs> resemblance to the dissipation of modern dance. That addresses the form. That's why to me, Ellen White is a theologian. Okay? Not just a devotional writer that you could read like in the morning like you would eat a Pop-Tart or something. No, she's a devotional. This is a, you, don't, you may not understand it, but this is a highly philosophical statement. And it's given by one who recognizes the integration between theology and worship forms. I don't know how God gave it to her, but that is a philosophical statement. When she says it didn't have the resemblance. That's a person who understands that the kind of dancing that they did at the golden calf is not the kind of dancing that David did. It's not the kind of dancing that Miriam did. Because certain forms only go on certain foundations. There are other references to dance. So if you want to justify dance, why not go to some of these? Exodus 32, verse 9, at the golden calf, we mentioned that. Baal Peor, we mentioned that. I want to concentrate on this one. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 26. That's in the days of Elijah. So God sent Elijah in to the king in 1 Kings 17. He marched in there unannounced. And he says, there's not going to be dew nor rain, but according to my word. And he went on out of there. They chased him for a long time. 
And finally, after three and a half years, he appeared to Ahab and uh, he said, we got to figure this thing out. Okay? We got to figure this thing out. I want you to take your prophets of Baal and meet me on Mount Carmel. And they did that. And so Elijah drew the lines. He said, you know, this is what we're going to do. You're going to build an altar to your God. And I will build an altar to the Lord, my God. And the God that answers by fire, let him be the true God. I can only imagine those prophets of Baal must have been just shaking in their boots. Because they knew down deep inside that their religion was a farce. They knew they couldn't put up. And so they tried the best that they could. Oh, they made a valiant effort. They erected their, maybe, I don't know what kind of altars, but adorned altars. They got all that stuff together. They were leaping. They were dancing. They were cutting themselves. And by the way, some people think that if there's noise, it's got to be the Holy Spirit. As long as there's a lot of activity and noise, that's when we know the Holy Spirit is there. But this example tells me otherwise. They were leaping and dancing. There was a lot of activity. There was a lot of hustle and bustle. I don't see no fire. No fire whatsoever. Finally, when they were through, Elijah said, okay, that's my turn. And he erected the altar of God after three and a half years. He erected that altar, offered a simple word of prayer. And before he could say in Jesus' name, fire came down. There is a way that God works. We can't just use any method. And we can't say that leaping and dancing and all this kind of music is associated with the Holy Spirit. Again, if you've been going to church on Sunday because you, you want the Spirit, you've just been manipulated emotionally. That's all that's happened to you. But you've walked away interpreting that as the Holy Spirit. So God called Elijah after the end of three and a half years to erect the altar. Think about this for a minute. There's three and a half times in the book of Revelation. God has called an Elijah movement to erect the altar, the sanctuary, to lead people back to the true worship of God. That's what he has called us to do. There are other negative references to dance, like in Matthew 14, verse 6, and Mark 6, verse 22. When Herodias, because John the Baptist preached that straight message and he said, it's not lawful for you to have her. The lady knew she couldn't make an open attack upon him. So she plotted and planned and schemed and sought for a convenient occasion in which she could put her design to work. And she counseled her daughter to dance before the king while he was inebriated with his guests. And after she was done, I tell you, it was breathtaking. And the king said, you know what? I'll give you anything you want, even up to the half of my kingdom. And she says, when she talks to her mother, she says, I want the head of John the Baptist right now. And like one preacher said, he should have gave her the other half of the kingdom. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. You know, you can't have this half. I'll give you the other half. But the man had lost his moral courage. He couldn't look bad in front of the fellas, you know. You guys know what I mean? No, we don't suffer peer pressure. No, not at all. I like what Elder Skeet said the other day. General youth conference or general youth cowards. 
And God is looking for a general youth conference, generation of youth for Christ. And believe it or not, it takes a lot of moral courage to be a Christian. But as you look at the cross and what Jesus went through and what others went through, as you keep your eyes focused there, He will enable you to go through whatever He wants you to go through. And you will look back and say, God, that was the best experience. So there are other negative references to dance. When is it a time to dance? Did Elijah dance? Did you know that there's, a, that, that there's an Elijah in the book of Revelation? Did you know that there's a Jezebel in the book of Revelation? Jezebel, Jezebel, I made the same mistake. The kids, my, my kids are going to get me on this one. I was doing a music seminar, and I had Jezebel in my mind, and I said, can everybody turn to Jezebel chapter 2? And my kids have never let me down on that. And here, just before GYC, I made the same mistake. Revelation chapter 2. That's where you find this modern Jezebel. She was a heathen queen ruling over God's people. You have a heathen queen in the book of Revelation ruling over God's people. You have an Elijah in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 to 12. Fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth the sea and the fountains of waters. Come out of Babylon, and don't receive the mark of the beast. That's the, uh, the modern day Elijah. That is this church right here. So, typologically speaking, who should be doing the dancing and who should not be doing the dancing? It's the prophets of Baal and Jezebel and her cohorts that do the dancing. It's Elijah that says, no, this is the altar of God. Rise and measure the temple in the heavenly sanctuary. That provides the proper integration between theology and doxology. So not during the time of apostasy. And for those of us that still believe this, not on the day of atonement. You don't find it there either. It's a solemn occasion. It's not done on that day. And we're living in that time. Notice this very powerful statement from the book Great Controversy. It says, The subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment should be clearly understood by the people of God. All need a knowledge for themselves of two things. The position and the work of their great high priest. Why is this so essential? She says, otherwise, it will be impossible for them to exercise the faith which is essential at this time or to occupy the position which God designs them to fulfill. So we need a knowledge of two things. As I mentioned before, God's people sometimes have been a day, day, day late and a dollar short. Jesus has died on the cross. The priests are still offering the useless sacrifices, trying to gain access to God through that. October 22, 1844, Jesus moved into the most holy place. God's people still stuck in the holy place. It's almost like the scribes and Pharisees who would say, well, if we lived in that day, we wouldn't have done that. While yet present truth is beaming, and yet are we walking in it? Have we grappled with it? Have we realized the systematic implications? She says it will be impossible for them to exercise the faith or occupy the position which God designs them to fulfill. Our theme is for this purpose at GYC. Now, interestingly enough, after this statement in Great Controversy 488, she says, watch and pray 
three times, and then the chapter ends. Watch and pray. So, friends, this is clearly a time to watch and pray. This is not a time to get sleepy or to get lazy in our Bible study or to lose our first love. This is a time to be on our guard because the enemy of souls, like a roaring lion, is seeking whom he may devour. Watch and pray. Now, when is dancing usually done? After a major victory, right? Did we not say that Jesus' death on the cross was stated in military terms in Colossians chapter 2? Is there a victory greater than that? No. But we're not at that time right now. So when we bring in a celebratory worship service where we can do anything we want, our attention is not being focused up where Jesus is right now, but it's being focused on a past event which is disassociated from what he is doing up there. Okay? We're celebrating, like one of my professors says, the false view of the atonement. That's what we're doing. We've got to get it in our minds that our forms of worship are intimately connected with our ideas of God and the plan of salvation. And when we, when we partake of certain worship forms that are not according to the biblical constraints, then all of a sudden those things are reinterpreted. So when we bring in the praise dancing and all that kind of stuff, we are focusing exclusively on the cross. Now don't misunderstand me on this. We can't lift the cross high enough. But our theological understanding of the cross does not only come from the cross, it comes from the integration of the cross and the Day of Atonement together. Because what Jesus is doing now in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary is just as essential as what He did on the cross. And it's no surprise to me when pastors of celebration churches have trouble with the investigative judgment. It's no big mystery because they're intertwined. Worship forms and theology and philosophy and, um, and salvation are all intertwined. So when you introduce this, what you're doing is what the same thing that Ahaz did. It's the same thing that Jeroboam did, turning your back on the sanctuary and focusing somewhere else. Building your altar in a place where it's not connected with the sanctuary. You're establishing your own altar on the basis of your own authority, on the basis of your own culture. Disconnected from the plan of salvation the way God has given it. That's what happens. Doing this will place us in the same position as the Jews in the popular churches in 1843 and 1844. Friends, the light marches on. Jesus says, walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. And if we are not following where He is, if we're so, if we're so focused on what He has done and an interp a false interpretation of what He has done, the light will march on and the Holy Spirit will be poured out and we will not interpret it correctly. Dancing during a time of war can bring disastrous results. Turn with me back to this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 16 to 18. As I said, the Amalekites, the, the Amalekites had thought that they had gained the victory. 
But all they found there was the women and the children. All the men of war were elsewhere. And finally, when those men of war came back and they saw the city leveled and the women and children gone, uh, the, men, the men were so discouraged, they thought they were going to kill David. But David encouraged himself in the Lord. I just want to make appeal to anybody who thinks that they've gone too far. It was David's own compromise that led him to go into the Philistines. It was that that set in motion this train of circumstances. In many ways, it was his responsibility and it was his fault. But he did not give in to depression. He did not give in to discouragement. And neither should you or should I. It said he encouraged himself in the Lord. So friend, no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've fallen, encourage yourself in the Lord. And move on. And he, and, and he asked for the high priest and he said, you know, bring me the Urim and the Thummim. And uh, he said, you know what, if we, if we pursue this troop, shall we overtake them? Yes, you will surely overtake them. And so they finally get there to verse 16. And of course, all these heathen Amalekites, they're thinking there's not, a, there, there's not anybody within 100 miles of the place. And so what are they doing? They're eating, drinking, dancing. Their guard is down. Verse 17, David smote them from the twilight, even unto the evening of the next day. And there escaped not a man of them, except 400 young men, which rode upon camels and fled. And, fled. and David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away. And David rescued his two wives. Amazing. Why? Because they were in dance and play mode. They should have been in watch and pray mode. And because they were not in watch and pray mode, David came in like an avalanche and bang, they were done. Did you know that the book of Revelation is all about the great controversy and the war that is going on? It's all about that. Friends, we're in the midst of a battle. We are in the midst of a war. And we cannot lay the armor down right now. We must press on for a little bit longer. We must watch and pray for a little bit longer. We can't get sleepy when God wants to show us a great revelation. He's got so much more to show us. But the book of Revelation is all about this war. And we're not through with it yet. You remember, I got, I'm Greek, so I got to tell the story of the Trojan horse. Oh, they fought for years, the Greeks and those Trojans. And they couldn't get anywhere. And I guess the Greeks, being a little smarter, used strategy. You know, fellows, we're not going to win this war. This is the idea. So they got that Trojan horse. They built it. They stuck their men in there. And they said, hey, you know, peace offerings, you guys, we all, you, you made a good fight. We made a good fight. You know, hey, let's just call it truce, fellas. And those dumb Trojans brought the horse into the city. And what do you think they probably did? They let down their guard. Because they never thought that anything would happen. They, they were convinced that the battle was over. And so when the battle is over, what do you do? You celebrate. And when the celebration was done, and the fellows inside the horse said, Hey, this is a good time. They came in, and that was it. How can the devil achieve victory over the remnant? Introduce Christian rock, praise dancing. Since dancing is done after a major battle, the subtle message 
that is being preached by instituting it in the church service is that the war between Babylon and Israel is over. No longer any conflict. The war between Babylon and Israel is over. Instead of watch and pray, it's dance and play. And the enemy, like a roaring lion, is couching in the grass, camouflaged so that you can't see him, ready to pounce at our weakest moment. That's how he can achieve it, friends. That's why Ellen White says that it would be impossible for us to occupy the position that God designs us to fulfill unless we understand the position and work of our great high priest. We must focus on where Jesus is at. We must see the proper integration between theology, philosophy, and worship forms and order our worship forms in such a way. That's what we must do. Let's make a little bit of an evaluation. I'm picking on rock because it's very broad and it's very universal. Rock communicates a pantheistic and postmodern world view. Pantheism is the belief that there is there was no distinction between the creation and God. God is confused with the creation. We already discovered that when we turn our backs on the sanctuary, the musical forms come from what we see. Our concepts of God come from the false interpretation of creation, like Greek philosophy. So it communicates pantheism. And it communicates a postmodern worldview. There is no heavenly sanctuary. There is no transcendent God that is out there. No, he is confused with the creation. Therefore, there is no distinction between the holy and the unholy. Are you following that train of thought? That's the whole basis of the emerging church movement. It is not just a movement to tickle people's fancy and try something new and innovative. No, it is a highly philosophical statement. When they say there's no distinction between holy and unholy, that's because God is in everything. And so if God is in everything, how can something then be not holy? Whatever is, is holy and can be used. We rarely think of the philosophical theological implications of that. There's no room for the Bible here. There's no room for the objectivity of the Ten Commandments. There is no room for a God that is out there in the heavenly sanctuary. That's gone. And it's the worship forms that are connected with that. Rock has a negative effect on our physiology, making it harder to maintain self-control. And if our young people are having enough of a problem maintaining the great hormonal changes that are going on in their system, we don't need to pour gasoline on the fire. It communicates sex and drugs and the occult. The drum set right here, and this is why I bring one, uh, again, there is a difference between the drum set and percussion. There's nothing objectionable about this per se, okay? <laughs> or if I was to take, oh, here we go. Yeah, we can do it this way. There's nothing objectionable about, about this, okay? Nothing intrinsically wrong with that. That's not a drum set, though, all right? And that's why I put it there so that you can see that this is the way uh, a rock jazz drummer plays, all right? 
So, but that is not a drum set, and there's nothing intrinsically wrong with it as long as the music you're playing is uh, is uh, uh, influenced by melody and harmony as as the primary um, uh, musical characteristics. The drum set is used solely to power the music of jazz and rock and their related hybrids. That's it right here. Now, some people say, well, maybe you can play it a little differently. You can't. You will not find me one recording of a drum set being used in such a way that cannot be filtered down to rock or jazz. If you do, he's not playing a drum set. And if he is, he's not, you can't conclude that he is based on what you're listening to. My teachers told me. Two rhythms, that's all. Rock, jazz, and their related hybrids. A pig is a pig. You can feed them veggie links all you want. It's still a pig. <laughs> Nothing wrong with this. This is not a pig. Okay? <laughs> this is not a pig. This is not a pig. Alright? This is not a pig. This is a pig. Okay? <laughs> I don't know. Is that clear? Does that, do, you, do you understand that? Okay? Nothing wrong with this. Or this. When you play it like this, rock, jazz. That's all you got. So anytime the drum set is used, the music has become either rock or jazz. Okay, what the issue is not. The issue is not the role of emotions and feelings in worship. Okay, this is not, you know... Um, like when I was in the Vatican or in the, in the big Catholic cathedrals where you have the Gregorian chant and you, it's strictly monophonic and, you know, you can't, uh, you can't, you can't sing in harmony. You can't, we're not talking about a Spartan musical diet here where there's no, where there's no emotion and feeling. I mean, God created all these other foods to enjoy and now you're telling me all I got is bread and water? No. It should speak to the emotions. Okay, but part of that is our own issue and our own problem as well. We must allow the Holy Spirit to change us and convert us before we can like, you know, if you keep feed a kid candy and junk food all the time and you put before them a good wholesome, you know, uh, an apple or something, what do you think they're going to go for? Well, they're going to go for the junk food because that's what they've been used to eating. And the same principle applies with music as well. So if you don't find some of it appetizing... It may not necessarily be the music. So, the issue is not the role of emotions and feelings in worship. The issue is not having a spirit-filled worship service, interpreted correctly. The issue is not allowing for differences that arise from our culture. Once we zero in on the principles, and again, I mentioned some examples that I'll mention them again. Uh, my wife's uh, uncle, three-time champion choral conductor in the Philippines. He had a group at the, not the last general conference session, but the one before. They were playing the anklong. You kind of shake it like this. So there was 30 of them. You know, that's a native musical instrument. And so they've constructed it in a way that they can play it, you know, having a high degree of uh, the characteristics of melody and harmony. Or from the Caribbean, you have the, 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 the steel drums or the kettle drums. And they can be played in a way where that is primary as well. So is that making sense? So we're not overturning all the cultures and saying, you've got to have a piano or an organ. And by the way, you know, many people say, well, they thought the organ was bad back then. Well, let me tell you why they thought it was bad. 
It was the same Platonic Greek philosophy that only allowed for Gregorian chant. And so the organ then was used in all these other contexts. But there's nothing wrong with it intrinsically. It can be used to play melody and harmony, and it can be used to play all these other kinds of music. The reason why they had a problem with it is because the church wanted this at the time. But the church was building on not the sanctuary philosophy. They were building on Greek philosophical structures. That's why they had a problem with it. So the organ argument is a weak one. The issue is not having a beautiful worship service. The issue is not being practical in the choices of music that we use. Well, what is the issue? It's realizing that the styles of worship we use affect the beliefs we have about God, salvation, and Christian experience, and are therefore doctrinal. That is an issue. The issue is not making feelings and emotions the foundation of our doctrine of worship. The issue is not making culture the foundation of our doctrine of worship. The issue is not making a doctrine of worship based on our own concepts of what's beautiful. By the way, if you look up the word beauty in the Bible, it says worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Sanctuary setting. So our beauty, our concepts of beauty and, uh, and, and aesthetics should be philosophically linked to that. And we spent some time talking about the fact that these things are all integrated. Just another story. When I was going, when I was uh, taking music history at York University, we would always study the philosophy of the day first. Music history class. We would study philosophy. And I'm beating my head against the wall saying, what's that got to do with music? Only now have I begin to, begun to, understood, to understand that whatever rules the heart forms the art. Have you ever wondered why 20th century music is in the 20th century and not in the 14th or 15th century? Why didn't they do that? They weren't smart enough? No. The philosophy did not exist back then. When you listen to 20th century music, it defies all the musical rules. Why? Because there are no rules anymore. In the 1800s, you have the rise of postmodern philosophy. It was after that advent, later on, that you have 20th century music. Not before. Because if you were to do it before, they would say, you know, the brother's a little loco here. You know, he's he not understanding things. <laughs> but in the 20th century, it makes perfect sense. Why? Because the philosophical groundwork has already been laid. The issue is not using the needs of the people to form the foundation of our doctrine of worship. Amen. Jeroboam said, you know, it's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. It's going to cost you too much. So we're going to set up one worship center in Dan and the other in Bethel. But the Bible said that was a sin. So not using the needs of the people to form the foundation of our doctrine of worship. A final appeal, music in the end time deception. Ooh, the clock is ticking. Daniel chapter 3, you're all familiar with it. The ecumenical movement has failed on the basis of doctrinal unity. The churches will never unite doctrinally. Protestants and Catholics, Protestants will still have a problem with Mary. They'll still have a problem with prayers and intercession of the saints. That's, that's always going to be an issue. But friends, music is doing more to unite them than anything else. And this is where I have a concern. Because at times in our universities, we are using the worship experience to try to unite us. 
And we're doing it by using forms of worship that are against what the Bible says. And that is not going to bring us unity. What is going to bring us unity is the Word in John chapter 7, 17, where, John, where Jesus said that they all might be one. And it was the Word that was the basis of the unity. And so you got all these events, you know, with all this kind of music. And music is powerful. People check, the, your, your, moral, your morals and your logic goes out the window in a big crowd like that. And when those musicians ask you to do something, you'll do it. And that takes a lot of courage to stand up against a crowd in that kind of environment. But that's where this thing is heading. The music is conditioning us to receive the mark of the beast. Amen. That's what it is. Because in our minds as we listen to it, we say, hey, we're really not so far apart theologically with all the rest of the folk. When the fact is, we're miles apart. The things you've described as taking place in Indiana, the Lord has shown me, would take place just before the close of probation. Every uncouth thing will be demonstrated. There will be shouting with drums, music, and dancing. The senses of rational beings will become so confused that they cannot be trusted to make right decisions. And this is called the moving of the Holy Spirit. No encouragement should be given to this kind of worship. Those things which have been in the past will be in the future. And we're seeing it. Satan will make music a snare by the way in which it is conducted. Let me just say one thing about that. Again, this can only be played one way, so that passage doesn't apply to this. It applies to this. It applies to the piano. It applies to the guitar. It applies to other instruments. But again, if you're playing it the way it was designed to be played, and you'll never bring me a recording that says otherwise, that's what you got there. But with all other instruments, yeah, it depends on how, how it's played. I mean, I can use the piano. Well, I can't, but others can use the piano to play it the way God wants them to, or they can play other forms of music. So just like Ezra and Nehemiah, we are called to be the repairers of the breach. We are given the duty of rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the temple. And this involved, even in Nehemiah's day, in obedience to the commandments of God. Nehemiah 12, verse 27, they, reared the, they, they used the instruments that David had set up. Friends, let's use the instruments of David. Let's use the instruments that have the characteristics of melody and harmony. The stringed instruments would not cover up the voice of the Word of God which was being sung. And friends, when rhythm drives the music, you'll find that not many people sing. They can't, you know, unless they're intimately acquainted with the song, they don't sing. They watch you sing. Again, for the same reason, only the harp is mentioned as an accompanying instrument in the book of Revelation. And God doesn't do things in an arbitrary manner. So we need a reformation in music. I want to just briefly go over these, these characteristics that the church has put out. You can find this in the greatcontroversy.org booth. Okay? And you need to have this. Musical characteristics. I need to run through this quickly because I'm already over. It should bring glory to God and assist us in acceptably worshiping. It should ennoble, uplift, and purify the Christian's thoughts. It should have a text which is in harmony with the scriptural teachings of the church. It should reveal a compatibility between the message conveyed by the words and the music, avoiding the mingling of the sacred and the profane. It should shun theatrical and prideful display. It should give precedence to the message of the text, which should not be overpowered by the accompanying musical instruments. 
It should maintain a judicious balance of the emotional, intellectual, and spiritual elements. It should never compromise high principles of dignity and excellence in efforts to reach people just where they are. It should be appropriate for the occasion, the setting, and the audience for which it is intended. This is in the church manual. Again, but you know, if something is really not theologically grounded, no one's going to listen to it. Total avoidance of rock and jazz rhythms and their related hybrids. That's in the church manual. The raucous style common to rock, the suggestive, sentimental, breathy, crooning style of the nightclub performer and other distortions of the human voice should be avoided. Music should be avoided that is saturated. That's the key word there. Saturated with 7th, 9th, 11th, and 13th chords, as well as other lush sonorities. Usually you find that in most jazz. But this is what it says as well. These chords, when used with restraint, produce beauty. But when used to excess, distract from the true spiritual quality of the text. Alright? It's kind of like having as much salt as food. You know, you kind of overdid that one. And the end result is the message is not conveyed. Anything which calls undue attention to the performer, such as excessive effect, affected bodily movement or inappropriate dress, should find no place in witnessing. Great care should be exercised to avoid excessive instrumental and vocal amplification. When amplifying music, there should be a sensitivity to the spiritual needs of those giving the witness and of those who are to receive it. The primary objective of all sacred music should be to exalt Christ rather than to exalt the musician or to provide entertainment. I want to thank you for listening. May the Lord bless each and every one of us as we seek to make decisions for Him. And I just want to challenge you when you go home. I want to challenge us as a church. I want to challenge us in our institutions to see what we can do to move this thing in the right direction. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your, uh, the privilege of being here. Thank you for GYC. May you be with every person that is here, every person that will be listening. May you give us the wisdom, the tact, and the ability to carry forth this revival and reformation all the way until Jesus comes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC generation of youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.